You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, Episode 72, brought to you by Vessi's Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, folks, tonight, today we've got Lee Reich here. He's an author. He's an avid farm dinner. He That's his own term he's coined. It's a person who keeps a garden that's larger than a garden, but not quite the size of a farm. He's got a graduate, degree, graduate degrees in soil science and horticulture. He's uh, been a researcher with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Cornell University, and now a writer, lecturer, and consultant, uh, which to me sounds like he's living the dream. Uh, he's written a number of books, uh, A Northeast Gardener's Year, The Pruning Book, I'd like to read that one too, uh, Weedless Gardening, Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. If you watch his YouTube videos, he's got a ridiculous amount of fruit trees growing in his property. Uh, uncommon Fruits for Every Gardener landscaping with fruit and growing fruit naturally so he's got a lot of uh, books uh, something that sounds about like about eight books and the book he sent me just uh, a week or so ago um, the ever curious gardener he's published in the New York Times and uh, Martha Stewart living for uh, for what that's worth so he's uh, written more books than me and published more stuff than me and got more accolades than me and he knows more about gardening than me so he's a great guest to have on this show <laughs> So, Lee, I'm going to let you talk now. Uh, we're talk he sent me his, uh, a copy of his book called The Ever-Curious Gardener. It's his most recent book, and it was reviewed by a recurring guest on this show, Robert Pavlis. And he's he's a hard man to please, uh, Robert Pavlis is, and he was very pleased with uh, Lee's book. So that's saying something. And, uh, Lee, how are you doing? Good. And Lee's talking to us. And thanks for the accolades. <laughs> and uh, you live in, uh, in New York State, is that correct? Yes, in the, in the Hudson Valley. In the Hudson Valley. Okay, so we've got a uh, we got an American on the show. Although a lot of listeners uh, of the show, and certainly I think my YouTube audience is primarily American, uh, but the podcast audience, we got a lot of Canadians here. We got Lee on the show today to talk about uh, the general topic of uh, soil, uh, organic matter in soil, its relation to tillage, uh, fertilization, and sustainability. And I've got some other questions for Lee that just came up. He gave me his book to read uh, about a week ago. I've been reading it, but I, I'll be honest, I have not finished reading it. I've got a process that I like to use for especially gardening books, books like that, is that I put them uh, in the bathroom and I <laughs> I just slowly digest them <laughs> over time. And I, I've picked uh, Lee's book, The Ever Curious Gardener, to sort of digest over the course of the winter. And I like reading books that books like that, sort of like knowledge books, uh, especially your book. It's extraordinarily dense. There's a lot of information in it. There's a lot to lot to digest. And I like to almost like when I was a student, you, you read things over and over again and, and reread and go back and almost study it, right? Um, so I think that's going to be one of those books for me where I, I, I really kind of work it over really well. Um, so I'm not finished reading it, but it's definitely a thought-provoking book. So t today, that's what we're going to talk about. So, so why don't we start off by, why don't I ask you, and this is well covered in your book, but just to give uh, the listeners a sense of, of where you're coming from, uh, the Yermo Crescent, what is soil? How can, would you define soil? What, what is it composed of and so on? Uh, well, first of all, soil is not dirt, <laughs> but uh, we don't like to hear it called, being called dirt. That's pejorative. But a uh, soil basically is is uh, you could break it down into four components. It's uh, basically ground up minerals, like rocks, basically the so-called parent material of the soil, 
and uh, that makes up about 50%. And then about 45% of the remaining space is air plus water, ideally uh, equal parts of each. Mm-hmm. And then there's a small percentage, 5%, is organic matter. And uh, the thing I emphasize is that 5%, that 5% of organic matter, even if it's only 5% of the soil, has a very dramatic effect on the soil uh, and uh, beneficial. I was really, you know, uh, I was reading that part of your book today on my lunch break, and um, I was really thrown by that. I wasn't aware that the composition is such a small proportion of it is organic matter. It's basically half rocks and water and air, and this is tiny bit of organic matter. But but very important, even like a small percentage change in organic matter can have dramatic changes in the soil. Well, the other thing that was interesting in in, in that particular chapter was your discussion of the your 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 evolution from con, uh, using the term uh, humus to uh, soil con, oh, yeah. soil continuum model and that sort of thing. I found that very interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think that's very, very thought provoking. Yeah, I like that. Somebody had sent me an article about this, and uh, basically, I learned the word iconoclast in uh, when I was in twelfth grade, mm-hmm. and uh, and I. Iconoclast means uh, literally image smasher. So I always like to anything that that debunks some previous held notion. And uh, this isn't necessarily accepted by all soil scientists. But um, so for decades, uh, there's always been considered when you study soil, you extract various components of the soil. And one thing you extract is the organic matter. And organic matter is made up mostly of carbon and hydrogen so it can actually decompose and if you and when it decomposes it becomes carbon dioxide and water but there's always uh when they did these extractions um there's always one part of the a certain percentage of the organic matter that's very resistant to further decomposition and this was always called humus this was supposedly the long-lasting component of the soil okay and uh you know that was accepted i you know i learned that and then somebody more recently came up with this, uh, <coughs> with this alternative concept that this humus fraction is not doesn't really exist. It only exists in a laboratory when you try and extract using these chemicals uh, the organic component of the soil. Some part of it can't be extracted, and that's what people call it humus, but that doesn't really exist in real life. Oh. It's just when you do this extraction, it exists. So basically, uh, the... the Newer concept, according to these uh, authors, which I believe, is uh, is that all organic matter in the soil is sort of cycling. There's some that's more resistant, some less resistant, but it's all cycling. New organic matter is added. Old organic matter gets uh, oxidized and basically, you know, burnt up as uh, high, um, carbon dioxide and water, and it's and it's just this continual flux in the soil. And this sort of in, is in Keeping the way, uh, I always like to put a practical slant on all this. So this is in keeping with, uh, you know, how I've always managed the soil, even though I, you know, learned about this uh, so-called humus, is uh, is just, you don't just figure out how much organic matter you have in the soil, and that's, that's just a given. Various things you do can increase or decrease it. And uh, so I'm always adding organic matter to the soil every single year you know, very heavy additions. And uh, and this really, has, as I said, a lot of physical, nutritional, and biological benefits to the, to the soil and the plants growing in the soil. And, and uh, 
organic matter is what put the organic in the word or in the phrase organic farming. So organic farming, organic gardening, that's really the organic there is organic matter. So it's really key uh, uh, to being a good gardener, whether you're organic or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, I seem to have found that too. Like this location I'm at, uh, previously I was in something uh, resembling a suburb, and then I moved here where I'm, my, my garden backs onto a, a wild forest. I've got black bears and raccoons and porcupines and every kind of thing you can imagine, coyotes and all kinds of stuff in my backyard. And uh, I could not keep a compost bin anymore because things just go in there and tear it apart. So I just decided to turn my garden beds into sort of like very similar to you where I'm just always putting layers of stuff on top and just adding mulches and just whatever I can find really just adding things all the time. And, uh, and all that stuff just perpetually seems to disappear. And it's right. being, you know, it's almost like you're feeding the garden. The garden is just this sort of animal, like you call it, uh, your compost pile of pet. Um, and you're just feeding it. And it, all this stuff just goes somewhere. And it's it's not like, like, and I can, I've got a reference point because all my garden beds, they're bordered with something, either rocks or, or two by six. I don't really go that high. Just, you know, two by six. And, you know, uh -huh. you'll add... You know, a foot, like, you know, I'll tend to mulch them really heavily going into the winter just because it keeps them from freezing up so much. And and that's just like feeding time sort of thing. But it's not like the gardens are, are gaining height, right? Like the, the soil level relative to the box that borders the, the garden, it never seems to go up. If anything, it's perpetually going down. Uh, so all that stuff is getting perpetually used up. And it's it's like a continuum. It's, it's the you know, that that part of the soil that's organic is perpetually becoming not there. It's just, you know, being yeah. used up. And, and actually, um, there's, yeah, there's actually a very small fraction. It's not a hundred percent used up because there are minerals in every organic material, yes. you know, the, the, and these minerals don't go off as a gas. Yes. And so, so, so it, it does go up a fraction of an inch. I always tell people that um, in my garden, so I've uh, added an inch depth of compost to all my beds pretty much every year for 30 years. So if they didn't, if this organic matter did not, you know, uh, oxidize, would be 30 inches higher than they would than they are now. Yes, and they're not. They're not. And they're not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it'd be like little tables. <laughs> yes. Yes. But uh, but but the bed the beds have actually noticeably uh, the whole garden is higher than the surrounding lawn where you know it was part of the surrounding lawn initially right uh so it, it you know it does add up over time yes i guess the next topic or the connected to that is uh i understand you don't tell your garden neither do i um so can you explain to the listeners why you don't tell your garden what what's your is uh what's your what's your approach what would you call your approach other than no-till gardening what is your reasoning behind that uh I oh um so there's a lot of reasons I don't tell. Uh, one reason, the main reason is because it's a really good way to uh, preserve organic matter. Because when you when you organic, you know, we've been talking about the oxidation or decomposition of organic matter, yes. uh, which is not a bad thing because when that happens, nutrients are released into the soil and then plants can, uh, can take them up. But if you, when you till a soil, you add, and one of the limiting factors to this decomposition is oxygen. So uh, when you till a soil, you 
charge it with so much oxygen to get this super fast burning up of the organic matter really too fast and uh so so you you re- what happens is it's sort of interesting because when you kill a soil that has a lot of organic matter it'll be like fertilizing it because you've just charged it with all this oxygen all these minerals get released and you and it might go on for like a couple of years or three years so that's why um you know at some time in the past people always so tillage was a good way to make the soil more fertile because you tilled it and, and you, it's like spreading fertilizer. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is eventually you burn up the org- so much organic matter, there's very little organic matter left. So it's really like taking money out of a bank faster than putting it in. Right. So that's one reason I don't till it because I want the, I want the organic matter decomposition to be nice and slow and steady. You're like a slow – And it's fast. Like a slow burn yeah, sort like, of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's been – Enough to to release enough nutrients without being so fast as to release as to burn up the organic matter faster than I can edit every year. So that's one reason, yes. very important reason to preserve organic matter. And there's some other reasons. Uh, one is it preserves the natural horizonation of the soil. You know, if you dig up any natural soil, and a lot of the things I do, I really um, take cues from natural systems. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so so if you look at a natural soil when you dig down or the organic matter isn't down deep in the soil the the most undecomposed organic matter is right at the surface and then it gets less and less as you go down and there's a good reason for this that's because all all plants most of their roots most of their feeder roots at least are in the top few inches of the soil and this is where there's most biological activity there's most aeration and uh and most organic matter so one reason i don't like to till is because i keep that stuff on the surface mm. where most of the feeder roots are right and and then the plants get to eat well, well and you think everything's and, sort of you know adapted over time to to work within a system like that yeah yeah so so i guess it, i i have a lot of faith in that yeah and then uh and another reason is you know as far as there's a lot of beneficial soil organisms there's uh especially mycorrhizal fungi that have this beneficial association with plant roots. There's earthworms, everyone knows. And uh, you can just imagine how these, these creatures feel when, uh, you know, when when some metal tines come through the soil and stir everything up. It really discombobulates them. So it's not really, not really good for them. But, um, and, you know, there's one of the main reasons uh, that I, another main reason that I, that I don't till the soil is for less weeds. It's, when yes. you till a soil, you bring you bring buried weed seeds that are uh, weed seeds that are buried in the soil to you expose them to light, and that's just what a lot of weed seeds are waiting to germinate. So basically, when you till a soil, you might be killing some weeds on the surface, but you're, just, you're essentially just sowing new weed seeds. Yeah, there's thousands so, of uh, weeds everywhere. So yeah, you're you're def- or there. That the weed might the seed might be at a depth where it doesn't get warm enough to to germinate or whatever and yeah you know, I mean you, there's like almost right. an infinite number of seeds kicking around and you're just giving other ones a chance to become plants. Yeah, and then there's one one final reason I don't till, and that's because uh, I don't have to till them. It's a lot easier. Yeah, that's for sure. I, th- I think it's the wave of the future. Yeah. Why why do you think it's it's taken so long for this to to catch on? And I mean like. Um, the literature on this on this approach is goes back to the 70s. So it goes back to the late 40s. Uh, one of the first books uh, that really emphasized this was a book called Plowman's Folly. Uh, she's now I'm forgetting the guy's name, 
but uh, but Plowman's Folly was on a commercial scale. Uh, the uh, the author was um, oh Edward Faulkner. That's his name. He was promoting uh, rather rather than tilling, he's promoting using a disc on you know farm scale uh, to uh, to prepare the soil than a plow. And then you know in this in the seventies there were some other people like Ruth Stout. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Yeah, but there's a lot of literature. You know, people uh, very. I think one thing is uh, people are conservative in changing their practices. Yes. Plus, for hundreds of years, it was always a sign of a good farmer or gardener to, in spring, have this really nicely tilled, uh, clean slate to work with. And uh, you know, old traditions die hard. Oh, it's almost like um, there's a term I you know like. Uh, when I'm digging up potatoes, I, I say that's a, a good use for for tilling withdrawal, because uh, <laughs> you know when you dig up your potatoes, you're sort of you're kind of like you're tilling the garden with your hands, right? Because you've got to go down a few inches or whatever, and uh, right. so then you get this smooth. Oh, look at that soil, and it's all soft and smooth, and you know because if you were if you're raised with that 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 approach, um, it's really hard to break the uh, the cycle of that. But I've just been since I've adapted to this system, you don't have to water your garden hardly ever. I mean, or, or less, you know, weeding is less. Oh. You, know, you don't have to bring in, the, you, know, you know, to buy fertilizer. Everything just seems to work. So I, I, I can't believe how easy it is to garden this way, and I do not understand why uh, it just hasn't taken off. I mean, uh, I, not one of my neighbors on my street uses this approach. And I, they'll, they'll come to my garden like, wow, you've got a green thumb. It's like, no, I just stopped doing all this. You know, like I literally, yeah. I'm doing this as lazy as possible. You know, one thing you mentioned that, that I forgot to mention is also about watering. Because uh, when you leave the soil untilled, you build up this fine network of, uh, of pores in the soil, uh, you know, large pores, small pores, both from freezing and thawing, but roots growing in it and dying and leaving channels, earthworm channels. And uh, and this um, and you have a lot of capillarity where you can draw water even against gravity. Right. So when you don't till, you build up this sort of almost crystalline structure and you get much, much more efficient water use. How does tilling, you know, the, the the alternative of tilling to not tilling, how does this affect the the existence, the web of the mycorrhiza in the soil? How does that, I don't really understand that. I, I think if it's if it's a web of stuff, then tilling it's got to mix it all up. Does it does it kill all of that or is it, does it just have to reestablish itself? Are you just moving it around and it gets reestablished? How does it, you know, how does tilling affect the mycorrhiza in the soil? Yeah, it reestablishes, but it obviously broke up all those connecting threads. So, uh, so it's a set. They suffer a setback, right? But they they don't they don't get killed, right? 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 But you know, you don't want ideally to have that setback. No, exactly. There is actually one other reason I think that people uh, in the spring like it's nice to get out and get your blood going so you can till the garden, or you know, it even makes might make you feel a little righteous you know like you're doing you're sweating and working and and you feel like you're doing the right thing i guess well it's almost like a yeah it's it's, it's a it's a cultural thing it's a culture shift right. and it's really hard to to get any sort of culture shift happening but um i guess it depends on how you're i i watched like one or two documentaries with people talking about this approach and i said okay that's what i'm doing now i mean i literally changed my mind at the 
at the conceptual level, at the theoretical level. It's just like everything that guy's saying makes sense. So I'm changing. No, no, I had a similar experience. I read uh, one or two books, one book especially, and and just seemed to make so much sense. And I decided to try it and and have done it ever since. So you you don't fertilize your garden. You you just sort of feed it with different things. But unlike me, you you actually do have a compost pile. So so for me, all I do is is add mulches to my uh, add a heavy mulch every fall around this time of year. As people start putting their leaves out, people start gathering mulch for me, so I start taking it. And you know, uh-huh. you know, on my way home from work, I just throw stuff in the back. It looks kind of odd because I have the sort of job where I have to dress up. So I'll see some guy in a shirt and tie pull over and <laughs> put all their trash in the back of his car and continue on in, in rush hour traffic. But that's how I gather it up. And uh, and I just put it on my garden, and 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 then in, in the spring I, I you know I might might move some aside or whatever, uh, and, and just get things going. Um, but you actually have a compost pile, so are you adding compost and mulch to your garden, or or certain gardens you just add mulch and certain gardens you just add compost, or just sort of depends on how things are looking? How do you do all this? Well, it depends on what I'm growing, because basically everything gets mulched, and by mulch. I mean, anything that's put on the surface of the ground and what mulch I use depends on, you know, what's, what I'm growing. For instance, uh, vegetables are very heavy feeders, mm-hmm. especially mine are very intensively planted. So I use compost as the mulch there. So every every year, all my beds get one inch depth or more of compost. And I made some calculations and this one inch depth provides all the nutrients that plants would need at, you know, a whole succession of plants for one year. And then in the paths between uh, the beds, I just get wood chips, uh, just have a sign out in front of my house, wood chips wanted, and then, you know, periodically an arborist uh, dumps a whole truckload. That's nice. And then, you know, in flower beds, I'll just use... I'll just use uh, either wood chips. I also pick up leaves, as you do. I uh, I actually have a mailing list that people uh, contact me uh, when their leaves are ready, and I go with my truck, and I pick them up, and I get about eleven truckloads. <laughs> so I'll put those down among my berry bushes and my uh, and and uh, my flower bed. And uh, I guess the other mulch I sometimes use, not that much, because I use it mostly in the compost. Is I have a, a field uh, next to my house, uh, well, joining my property, and I, with a scythe, periodically I'll cut the. Uh, I would call it hay, but it's really sort of a coarse hay. But I'll cut some of hay or, or just whatever plants are growing there. Giant, giant and weeds. I'll, and I'll, and, yeah, and I'll use it in, yeah, I mean, a lot of them would, you know, goldenrod, uh, bee balm, uh, a lot of grasses, mm-hmm. things like that. And I'll, and I'll just add it to the compost pile, but sometimes I'll use that as mulch too on fruit trees. In the garden, I also like to use the compost as a mulch because – because um, the compost that I make is pretty much weed-free, right. so uh, you know I don't want to put down something that has weeds in it right. in the garden. How do you find? So I was on a Facebook group and they kicked me off, <laughs> and the reason they kicked me off, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a funny thing to talk about. They kicked me. They're they're British, and I, I don't know if I'm listening right now, but um, they kicked they <laughs> kicked me off because I put uh, all these mulches on my gardens, and and what they do is they 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 do compost and they they just mulch the garden with compost basically they don't put like straw and hay and leaves on stuff on the garden they they put the compost on the garden and they argued that 
it uh, minimizes slugs and snails and uh, and they said uh, you know you can you can contribute to the to the group but uh, you can't show any you can't do any of that talking about doing this so, well everything I do is like that so you might as well I said you might as well just kick me off and they did <laughs> so do you wow. do you find that that's very it's very dogmatic yes I uh, I even the, even the non telling I, I like to tell people that um that it's not a religion there are certain situations where tillage is called for and you know after all agriculture or gardening is not nature because if it was nature we, we wouldn't do anything and it would just be whatever happened to grow there so we're doing something and everything we do is a balance between in well at least in my view what i try and do is i try and uh, you know emulate natural systems but it's obviously not the same Exactly, because I'm growing vegetables that I want to eat in you know intensively. So uh, you know, as far as mulching with compost or something else, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to to both both ways. Do you find in beds where you've mulched, and I I, I can't use this reference because I don't do this, but and I get a lot of slugs and snails in my garden. But you know, once once the plants are of a certain height, they just seem to be able to handle themselves. But do you find in the beds where you've just mulched them with compost that, that slugs and snails aren't a problem? Um, yeah, I don't have particular problems. So there's other reasons. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not just whether you mulch or not. For instance, when it used to be when I mow the lawn, whenever I saw a frog or a toad, I can't I always forget which is which. But anyway, whenever I saw one hopping around, I would pick it up and I'd put it in the garden. and might have made a con contribution. I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, get over there. Go to and work. then, and and the and the other, then the other thing, I know you don't have this, but I happen to have ducks, and the ducks are not allowed in the garden, although they'd probably do a good job on slugs and snails. But I don't want them messing up my garden. Uh, so, but they, but they're free range, so they can go all around outside the garden fast. And I guess uh, that must prevent something from getting in from the garden too. So between those two things, you know, if it's really moist weather, I'll. Uh, I'm trying to think. I really haven't had a problem, but I expect I must have had some problems at some point if it was real wet weather. And this year was a very wet year and had no. So, so I guess the answer is no, I don't have problems with them. I wonder why. So I didn't have much of a problem. And then around 2015, we had an insane winter. We had like a ridiculous amount of snow and it was just really cold. As, as a reference point, the lake behind my house, which normally you can canoe on April 1st had four feet of ice on it on April 1st so um, you know oh, it was extremely wow. I mean, we still had there was still frost in the ground late into May that year which is very rare um, usually it's all thawed out sometime in, in April right um, so that year I had a pest explosion I, I'd never even had flea beetles before in my life and all of a sudden I didn't even know what what was going on like I had all these little holes in my plants oh. I never had that and I had slugs and snails and all the stuff everywhere and uh, but the thing I noticed that summer as well is I hardly saw any toads or any snakes and but I used to have snakes everywhere and uh, <laughs> they just seem I, I think the population got wiped out and you know also, I mean, I was I was getting more and more into the no-till thing, so I think maybe the system had to adapt. And I've got a lot of people that are always saying, you need ducks, you need chickens, and that sort of stuff. But it's not like there isn't 
predatory birds in my garden. I, I've noticed year after year after year, I have yeah. more and more and more birds in my garden, just and they're there all the time. And what are they? They're eating snails. They're they're eating all that stuff because it's it's easy food. Right. And I think just the, over time, those populations are you know like. All the local birds are the ones that migrate in. They're starting to realize that my garden's a good place to hang around, and you know it's a good place to get an easy meal, that sort of thing. You'll go yeah. in there, and all these birds will take off. Another factor in my garden might be I keep my ducks hungry. <laughs> Basically, what 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 they eat is what it's they up get to that. outside. You're on your own, man. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wish I had ducks. Well, it's a dream of mine. Uh, I don't I don't live in the right location for it here, but uh, I think the next this is I think we're gonna move one more time. Uh, it's a shame because you you put all this energy into building a garden and get everything just right, right but uh, you know you happy wife happy life so <laughs> yeah. gonna move one more time. Uh, but I told my wife the next location we're gonna have bees and we're gonna have ducks or chickens. <laughs> but that's a sort of retirement project. <laughs> yes, the, the problem with chickens is they scratch up the ground a lot. Ducks don't. Uh, don't really scratch. Oh, that's, so the, the ducks are more benign, like in uh, relative to uh, your gut. In in that way, they they have their downsides too, but uh, they have, in my view, more upsides and downsides. Can you let them roam around your garden? Like if you let them in with your kale and stuff, would they just leave all that alone, or would they start eating the greens too? They probably start eating the greens. I, I don't want them uh, in the garden. Right. Right. So they're more like a good perimeter guard sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably. I think you might be onto something. It uh, makes a lot of sense. Hey, it's Greg here. Uh, Lee and I ended up talking for over an hour, and uh, I decided to break this this episode into two parts. So stay tuned for part two of that. There's just a lot of editing required, and so on and so forth. On the good side, we get two episodes out of Lee. We had a great conversation. In the next episode, we continue the conversation and go into the topic of uh, sustainability, his understanding of what that term means and how he puts it to practice in his garden. And also just a couple of random questions I had that, that I had come up with as I was reading his book, just re relating to the content and so on. So uh, it's a good conversation and uh, definitely worth tuning in. I won't wait two weeks to put that second part up. I'll put it up next weekend, next Saturday in the morning on Saturday as I usually do. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And uh, until then, get out there. Get at it, have fun in your garden, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.